Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, the podcast where we're bringing sites for HR and learning development leaders. This podcast is brought to you by Headspring, the executive education joint venture between the Financial Times and IE Business School. I'm your host, Thiago Kivi, and today our topic is going digital. More precisely, what it takes to make change happen. To explore this topic, I have here with me in the F2 studios, Lindsay Jones. who is an author and former executive editor of the Financial Times. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, Tiago. And joining us remotely all the way from Spain, I believe, we have Balvinda Power, who is a professor at IE Business School, and he's also an associate faculty at Headspring. And he worked with us in many, many programs with many clients in, you know, all over the world. So welcome, Bao. Thank you, Tiago. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Bao. So, Lindsay, Balvinda, I just want just to set the context first. Um, Lindsay, do you want to talk briefly about your career, where you're from, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, well, um, funny enough, I was uh, an executive editor at the Financial Times and I had an extraordinary career there in journalism uh, where I uh, spent the last seven years of my 20-year career there transforming um, editorial, um, overseeing, uh, overhauling, working practices and operations, um, and hopefully adding value at the same time and boosting revenue with various uh, various things that we did there. Mm-hmm. And then I went on from there, um, and in the last 18 months I've become an author and publishing consultant mm-hmm. working with media houses across Europe and Africa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How has it been going so far? It's been going incredibly well. There are an yeah. awful lot of businesses out there that are transforming and uh, need help or advice in terms of how to make change happen in their businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was saying to you earlier, you know, it must be it must feel quite weird just to be back at the FT here after twenty years and come as a guest, right? Yeah, it, it was it was very strange. I'm not, I'm uh, just for the listeners. I'm not allowed past security. I <laughs> I have to wait now and have all my friends let me in. That's a very weird experience. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, it's good to have you back. And um, Balvinda, yeah, uh, it's good to see you again. You know, <laughs> uh, even remotely. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I mean, I've had a very varied career. I mean, not planned so much, only recently pretty strategic. But I actually grew up in the UK. I studied my BA in business and finance, but I was always interested in people. So that gets to a bit about the topic of the book and company culture. Later on, I worked in TV. I was an aid worker. I started setting up my own companies. And I actually studied a master's in mediation in London because I really wanted to understand people, how to leverage conflict, how to help people to create healthier work environments. So currently, I divide my time with managing my different businesses more in a strategic point of view and also training, for example, with Headspring and I University. So it's been a great journey so far and writing the book together with Lindsay has been, you know, a pinnacle all over that. It must be quite interesting, isn't it, Bal? Because, of course, you are at IE 
right? Delivering yes. programs. And I guess mm-hmm. you teach uh, some of the, the bachelors or MBAs as well there? Yeah, bachelors, mainly MBA. Yeah. Okay. And it must be quite interesting to see this new crowd coming into the market, right? And while at the same time, training executives as well who already have a, a lot of experience. So you must see the both sides of the coin, right? Yeah, both sides yeah. of the coin. And we touch on that in the book, the thing. Mm. We need people who are bridges. So the more senior executives have a lot to share, maybe about leadership. Mm. And the young ones have a lot to share, maybe about their perspective regarding how the use of technology mm. and what is important for them regarding how they want to work. Mm-hmm. So there are some divides, but the interesting thing, these worlds are coming together and it gives you many, many different perspectives. And as we know, innovation is created by combining different perspectives in a positive way. So, yeah, I feel fortunate I can work with many different types of people. Mm-hmm. Great, great, great. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, and of course, uh, probably the main reason why you're here today, both of you, is because you have come together to launch a book, right? We have. Yes. We yeah, have we indeed. Have. <laughs> um, going Digital is yeah. the title of it and a subtitle of what it takes uh, for better, smoother transformations. Mm. Um, well, I don't know, Bal, we yeah. worked on this together at a crazy <laughs> time, didn't we? It was, it was the pandemic. Yes. You very kindly said you'd work uh, work <laughs> with me on this. Um, I had I got my inspiration uh, for this book to write about digital transformation from a people perspective, from managers' perspectives. I really mm-hmm. wanted to talk to people like myself who'd been team leaders, who'd had to drive transformation, and often their voices are unheard or they're invisible or you're change champions in your company that for some reason they're not at the, they're not at the top table. But these are key people in organisations that will help drive your transformation. And so I was very interested in that and inspired by a bit by what I'd gone through at the FT in my time as uh, transforming the way people work and the challenges and the tricks and the tactics uh, that you had to get up to. And uh, Bal, you were instrumental <laughs> in uh, in uh, helping there with the theory and, and making it making it sense of it all. Yeah, I mean, what a journey, what a challenge, as you said, in a very difficult time for everybody, because we met initially Mm -hmm. on a Headspring event, we were co-facilitating before the pandemic. And basically, we haven't met since then, like more than two years ago. So we also use digital technology to write the book. Mm. So we would have calls, video cons, we'd use asynchronous tools, Mm. simple ones like Google Docs. And, you know, what we found out is that we are a good combination. I mean, writing a book is not an easy thing, Mm. especially when you're doing it for such a big publisher, Pearson, FT group. Mm. But we found that we are very complementary in the sense Lindsay had her own experience with FT, a very successful transition from paper to digital. Mm -hmm. I could give some other perspectives regarding, for example, management theory and experience with companies. So the book is a mixture of the case studies, management theory, and a lot of, you know, work experience we've both done, Lindsay at FT, me a lot with different companies, and what's key to this change. So in itself, it was a challenge because apart from the pandemic, everybody has their own stuff to deal with. But in a way, it was a moment that we could have for ourselves to make uh, sense of things. But, you know, definitely apart apart from the product, 
the whole process was very challenging but fruitful. But also, just to finish this part and hand it back to you, you know, what I've discovered is that there are not many books that are for people who have to, on the cold face of managing innovation, they tend to be either very technical mm -hmm. about the business frameworks, or, they, or they're very vague. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. ours is really a playbook, and it really talks a lot about the power of soft skills mm -hmm. or what we call the power skills because although it's called going digital we realize the human element to change is probably mm -hmm. the biggest aspect okay that's a very interesting point that you're already touching upon right uh um lindsay you don't come from a technical background as you said you come from first i guess editorial background and then you went into more management roles in, within the FT. And of course, you are dealing with a very particular crowd, which is <laughs> journalists, I guess, mm -hmm. right? They tend mm -hmm. to be skeptical, you know, in the best of their days, right? <laughs> how uh, how was your experience uh, actually making these projects happening? Right. Well, um, how do I answer that question? I mean... <laughs> Okay, I've made a career of it. I made my name, uh, I guess, at the, the FT uh, delivering the, these types of projects. Um, uh, newsrooms are very tricky places to work at times, uh, particularly when you're introducing change. And what I mean by that is they're very democratic. So you have to bring people with you. Mm -hmm. You can't impose, even though I think I really would love to impose. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that's really, well, I just really love to tell people, yes, please just go and do that and then just do it. Um, but you can't uh, actually manage uh, like that. And you certainly can't manage journalists like that. You have to influence, you have to persuade, and you have to come up with all kinds of uh, tactics really to uh, cajole people into doing things, maybe even, dare I, dare I say it, trick them. I think I did trick people at times. Um, uh, and uh, kind of touch on these types of tactics that you can use if you're having to deliver uh, very sort of tricky mm. transformation projects mm. and uh, meeting a lot of resistance. Mm. Um, I think if anything from that experience, one thing I would change personally is that I would have sat down before I started out on these transformation projects and worked out who who was going to actually support me, the allies, mm. and actually also who, and with names, mm. <laughs> who mm. would uh, would resist. And that might have I might have been a bit more strategic around what I what I did if I had mm. uh, really thought that through from the first uh, place. In hindsight, that's probably quite easy to, to, mm -hmm. to do. But I guess when you're right in the thick of it, it can be quite hard, right? You know, it's very difficult yeah. to, to yeah. stick your head above the, the parapet there just to have a, like an overview of understanding yeah. what's going to happen. Sure. But I think I think when you're in the thick of it, what you can do, and maybe Bal can come in with some mm. tips as well, but certainly yeah. what I think you can do is really look at who are the people who've helped you uh, perhaps uh, deliver something else successfully who are those people who are open to change they may even be 
volunteering uh, to, to help you. They might mm. come forward um, uh, with ideas and so forth. And they're the they're the people to really grab hold of mm. and um, ask them to be involved in in your project. And they might not even be in your team. I certainly had that. I had a very wide ranging role and had to get people involved who who were not in my team, did not have to answer to me, and in some cases were sort of above me in the in the hierarchy. So it certainly weren't people that I could tell uh, by any means what to do, but I certainly had to persuade them um, or, or, or do a trick on them. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. And, and uh, Bao, I guess yeah. in your book, you brought a lot of uh, interesting case studies. Yes. Um, from your experience, uh, not just from the case studies, but also working with organizations out there, what tends to be you know, the biggest blocker really for mm-hmm. digital transformation? Now, as we had sort of alluded to, the human element is so big. Mm-hmm. And this is something I've clear that if you give people technology and they don't know why they're using it, you're not really going to get a lot of interest or motivation or adoption. So if you, what we discovered in writing the book and interviews with so many people at many different levels and many senior people, really the culture part is key. So a lot that's come out of the book, you have to be very strategic about culture and building the right foundations. So when senior managers have read the book, they've told us and they told me that this is consolidated what they've done when they weren't conscious of it because they're problem solvers. And for the more young or mid managers, it's really helping them to avoid the pitfalls. And not just by the stories, but by certain specific techniques they can use. Because a lot of the time when you have to do something, there's a lot of pressure on you to innovate and there's a big investment there, you just get on with the job. But just taking a few steps back and thinking about your strategy and having these tools we talk about, like needs assessment, using science like Belbin about team roles, it can really help you to get a better result, avoiding the pitfalls and getting to your results quicker. So somehow, you know, there's decades of knowledge in there so you can get in there and avoid certain risks and hopefully have a better result quicker so it's the case studies are key but also the theory because you know you might read and think wow i I realize that but the theory tells it specifically like how people work in teams how like lindsay said influence and persuasion Mm. i give a course at a university about that it's my most popular course Mm. so we talk about the science behind it and then there's a lot of aha moments but i'd say as a simple thing a lot of it is about culture Mm. getting the culture right and then you choose the tools Mm. so as lindsay said sometimes you have to stop and think who your allies how you're going to lobby You know, I talk about that in the book about lobby. Lobby is something we use all the time. Mm. You know, when you have two people, you get a political relationship. Mm. But what you have to understand, even if the objective is the same for everybody, all the stakeholders have slightly different needs. Mm. So give everybody something to move them towards your objective. And a big message also about communication, how we need to communicate. So, Mm. yeah, a lot of that stuff. Okay, I mean, I got a lot from this answer about, you mentioned culture. You yes. mentioned the whole thing about lobbying, which is something I like to touch upon. <laughs> yes. And you talk about communications. I guess all of this probably would fit under the, the, the wider umbrella of leadership, I guess, right? Yeah. Technically. Yeah. So. 
technically speaking. Just exploring a little bit about culture. Mm-hmm. How do you get to that sweet spot point? You know, I guess there's no organization out there who's perfect, right? Everyone is on their journey. Every business out there is on their own transformation path, right? But um, are there any good examples or cases of organizations that have got it right? If I can give an example, and then I'll Mm. pass it to Lindsay, maybe. Yeah, of course. I mean, for example, culture is a tough one because it sounds great, but it's a very Mm. hard thing to move. Mm. So you have to find the most influential people, especially we talk about in the book, getting the top-down influence to make things happen. And then we talk about, you know, lean and agile, doing little experiments, Mm. because most people are resistant to change. And we talk a lot about the science of that. So what you have to do is to give people some benefit, Mm. because if people see there's a benefit to what you're doing and you make small experiments without too much cost, then you can create a new type of momentum. But you can't just run into it to try and do it. And a quick example, there was one example that came out of the book from Marta Javaloy's of BBVA Bank. And Mm. they've started to do something which was really surprising to us. So to get rid of the power and maybe the bias of the leader, on some projects, they do something called liquid pool. Mm. That means that people bid internally to do a project. So they're not being guided by the leader. The attraction is that they bid to a project that they find interesting and you employ the best people for the job of the project. So the project leads are not a person. And that was very interesting for us because that's normally what an external provider might do Mm. or a type of website looking for talent. But they apply Mm. that internally into the company. So the ones that are doing well, we've seen is the culture has to be aligned to Mm. the results they want to create. And I think a that's of, a yeah, I think that's ahead. a really uh, good point there, Bal, and what you're saying about aligning the the culture to the results. But what I was really going to come in and say is that yeah. I think companies can get really hung up around, or people can get hung up on uh, what is our culture and. Really, what they mean by that is this is how we do stuff around here. And they can be very sort of uh, caught up in they don't really want to change um, the culture or sort of protect the culture in some way. But what I find in terms of who I've worked with, and I'm talking about media houses across Europe and East Africa now, um, that their culture evolves and business culture evolves as you're transforming the way that you work. And so I wouldn't necessarily get too hung up on it. But uh, in terms of the book and one really good example we had of culture was Zoom. I don't know if you remember Mm. Zoom Bell. In that their culture is all about happiness, right? Mm. Amazing uh, as as, as something that the company is focused on. And their core value is actually delivering happiness to employees customers and communities and they really put the emphasis on soft skills and keeping their employees happy and I really like that yeah. we really sort of focused in on that as part of uh, what culture can mean and mm. and uh, part of that was actually really trusting their employees as well I think trust is something that came mm. up time and again Love. actually with uh, delivering successful transformation projects Mm. You've got to re- you've got to trust your employees to deliver these things. 
And if you look at that, what, what we tried to tie in, Tiago, mm. was that the theory, so people can understand these things are not made up, but they have a scientific base. Mm. So when we talk about happiness, we divide two types of motivation, the external and the internal intrinsic. So the external is you have to do, the internal is you want to do, which is much more powerful. And then we go to examples we made, for example, of Daniel Pink in his book Drive, when mm. he talks about the three things that provoke this intrinsic motivation at work, mm. purpose, autonomy, mastery. And he shows that just by mm. changing and giving people a bigger view of things, they can have a much bigger motivation if they realize the impact of their work. And he gives an example of janitors and cleaning staff in hospitals who were given time every day with the patients. And a lot of them, their view changed from, I'm not just cleaning a building, I'm helping people to get their health back. And the tangible result of that was some people trained up to be nurses and mm. some people trained up to be doctors. Wow. So that stuff is interesting. And the trust part, you know, we probably, we'd agree and it came out of the book from the interview, especially the senior ones, that is probably the biggest value in business. And then if you look at it, especially in the pandemic, there's a trust triangle, which we mentioned in the book. And there are three things you have to show to gain trust in business. Mm. One is being authentic. Second is empathy, very key in the pandemic. And third is having logical, incredible data that you share, things that can be tested. So a lot of these things tie together and we go behind to say, there's a reason for this. So if you understand how it works, you can replicate. You know, a lot of successful innovation and change isn't done by chance. We're gonna give you a playbook to make it happen with less risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, trust as well, in a way means that uh, people need to give people space. Right, to innovate, yes. to create, to just to be themselves mm -hmm. and to come up with ideas and above all, fail. Yeah, uh, right. now, you're, now you're really yeah, hitting on something. <laughs> yeah, uh, this, yeah. this idea of embracing failure. Um, I've, I've got quite strong views on that, I think, really. I mean, so, some of the people that we spoke to uh, about this were, were very sort of keen to point out um, it, it's not about rushing to embrace failure. First of all, they don't mean go and drop 50 million no. pounds <laughs> on something and that's okay. No, it's not okay. Um, it actually means fail fast and small scale um, yeah. and uh, basically test out what you're doing, review it, and if it's not working, adapt it and pivot quickly. Um, the other side to it is if you find that you have run an experiment and people are going around saying, oh, it's failed, it's failed, actually you could really look at it and you might find that well, actually 70% of it worked very well. And uh, one of the people we spoke to who worked on the commercial side of the Financial Times is an example in the book around that. And there's very strong views around that, that they, they did a very good project. It, it sort of failed, but they ended up taking it forward and uh, making something work in a, in a different way. Um, and and that's, that's sort of how you can build on these, uh, these so-called failures as well. You do have to be careful that you don't lose a ton of money, though. And that's why we said fail fast, know when to stop, and you have to be assertive. But also what we've learned, especially with uh, systems like open innovation, where legacy firms give their 
problems to startups, you know, legacy firms have a lot of good things because when they know something's right, they put a lot of resources into it, but sometimes they're not very flexible. But you can't ask a traditional firm to just radically change everything. As you said very well, Tiago, you have to give them space to do experiments. Mm. And if they work, they can expand them. Because if a legacy firm is doing well, that means a lot of what they're doing is working very well. But you have to give space for a bit of disruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not saying you change everything because you probably don't need to. So the context is key. Mm. And we found there, Ballard, if you remember, but we yes. found that there was a, a map for, for example, in the insurance industry, mm. yes. where they had uh, an innovation hub um, mm. and where they worked closely with technological partners uh, and also connected with universities or business schools. So they were sort of getting yes. their innovative ideas externally, but through this innovation hub, and that was uh, a successful way of doing it. And also, I think we spoke to um, a law firm, I think it was Hogan Lovers. Yes, Hogan uh, Lovers. Yeah, um, and they had were also doing tie-ups with universities, again, f- uh, to sort of uh, reap the benefit of those uh, brains of thinking of innovative ideas connected to their business. And it's interesting because I was actually on the board of that innovation hub at Mafre. And we also mentioned in the book, and if you look at, we have very funky chapter titles. One of the things was things that are unexpected. So Mafia, for example, wanted unicorn startups that worth at least a billion euro dollars. They didn't get that initially, but what they got is a change in culture where more younger talent was interested in this traditional insurance firm because they saw them investing in startups and the employees started to think like entrepreneurs. So that was actually the biggest gain for them in the short term because they didn't get their unicorns. But that actually has a lot of value because another thing we're seeing now and I'm seeing recently on my travels, especially in more healthy economies, there's a talent war. So Mm. the culture can retain, attract the right people because we touched on that in the book. If you don't have the right people, how are you going to get the job done? How are you going to stay relevant? And that's a point that I wanted to pick up, actually, because getting the right people is a challenge nowadays, right? For organizations, mm. for HR recruiters and all of that. At the same time, organizations, they can't stop until they, they can't wait. They can't wait to, until they have the right people to mm. start projects. Or, I think I think you have to be very okay. I'm going to put my cards on the yeah. table here. You have to be very careful about the term "right people." Let's get, let's exactly. get that out okay. there as well, yeah. right? Because we have a, a whole chapter on diversity and how uh, diversity is key to transforming businesses, particularly in fragmented markets worldwide. You you need to have uh, people in your organization from diverse backgrounds and diverse ways of thinking about things and so when you say right people often it might come across as if you mean it's people like us when actually a lot of organizations are trying to uh, widen who they who they employ and who they who they take on um, and, and reasons for this, uh, as we've gone into in the book, is um, driverless cars, for example, have had problems spotting non-white 
faces or non-male faces or airbags had been designed with mm. ad adult males in mind only so it posed risks to smaller passengers, for example. So this is why it's so key to make sure you are actually hiring a, a diverse group of employees who are talented and um, you can bring on that talent. Adobe had, had really looked into this and changed their hiring practices actually mm. uh, by introducing an apprentice uh, scheme mm. um, where they developed technical talent that could then be hired into the company and about 60% of the candidates have been hired four times since that program started in 2016. That's awesome. Yeah, that's precisely the point I wanted you to get into because, yeah, it's sometimes, you know, whether you call it the right people or the people that you need for a particular project, uh, my question is you don't you don't always have the ideal template right in place that you at least the the one that you envisage to start a project right you know at the moment we're just uh, finalizing a project ahead of spring and so it would be really good to have someone with this ability to do this someone else to do this but we had to do it regardless right and i uh, just wanted to get from your perspective as well or even some advice mm -hmm on how organizations that are really short in staff or struggling with resources at the moment, how how they can actually find the talent within, how they can perhaps, you know, use existing resources or, or leverage those existing resources or even discover new potentials for new people internally to actually deliver something. Uh, did you come across any case studies like this? or Yeah, I mean, yeah. Bound, you can come in on this as well, but yes. I think maybe what you're getting at here, uh, Tiago, is this idea of continuous learning and personal yes. personal development as well throughout your career. Um, I'd also actually add into that is this just-in-time training, um, which is... You don't just put people on a training course and then let them go back to work and let them fall back into their own old uh, behavior patterns. Um, you, you need to have the training right up to the point where they're then going to use it and help have a facilitator with them to ensure that you're helping to change those behavior patterns. Mm. Um, I mean, Bal, I don't know if you... Yeah, sure, and it comes back to things I mentioned like mastery. We know that when you're training people, they get a benefit and they feel more motivated because they feel that the company cares for them. Mm. And also you want the people to have a chance to grow. So a lot of the time when things have been tough, but people take a new perspective, they learn a lot. And we even talk about cases where things failed, but the learning was so valuable to be successful later on. Mm. And then when you talk about culture, we do talk about use of data. We talk about diversity and more and more, companies are doing psychological tests to think about culture fit. And there are other aspects about the use of technology. And we talk about that, meaning more and more the basic things are going to be done on my machine, especially repetitive mundane tasks. Mm. That's why we have to focus on the stuff that are much more human. Mm. And we have a futurist, a very famous one called Gerd Leonard in the book talking about that. Basically, you know, certain soft skills are going to be more important as machines are more normal in day-to-day -day work. And they're going to be the ones like ethics, imagination, creativity, managing diversity. There are very human things which machines cannot do very well. So maybe technology gives us an opportunity to focus on those things. Mm. And also we touch on the end about megatrends, meaning in the world we're living in, 
it doesn't matter where you are. I've set up companies when the talent has been all around the world. We have asynchronous tools. So we talk about a results only working environment. Mm. Today, it doesn't matter where people are. And, you know, the way we've been working, the pandemic has changed everything, meaning before working from home was a impossible sort of possibility, nice to have. Now it's essential. It mm. saves companies money. It gives more flexibility. People are more motivated and it's actually good for the environment. So the talent pool can be anywhere. And a testament of that, you know, you look at the jobs on a place like LinkedIn, maybe 50 to 70% say remote. So that also changes everything, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when we were interviewing people for the book, I mean, Citrix is one of the companies that stood out to us at that time. It was uh, uh, towards the end of 2020, early 2021. At that point, uh, Citrix were already looking at just employing anybody worldwide and they would they would sort out the, the tax problems or, or whatever financial issues that, uh, you know, they had to resolve in order to employ somebody uh, around the world. Uh, it didn't matter that if the job was in Switzerland and you could do it in California, as long as you can do the job and the time zone uh, is is resolved somehow or other. But they were open open to that kind of idea that Bal is uh, talking about. And obviously we've seen more and more companies now saying that they're doing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's lots, there are challenges, but always big opportunities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the people we've seen be successful, they've been able to adapt to the time or even predict mm-hmm. the future and be a bit more pioneering. Mm-hmm. And... Um, from uh, your experience, especially speaking with all these companies for the, for the book, could you find any, or did you manage to identify any patterns on, in behavior or culture or even a formula to make digital transformation actually happen? I think there's a lots of things there. I mean, once, you know, being very open, thinking exactly what you have to do, thinking about the stakeholders that you need you know what technology can drive having doing experiments and being brave Mm. you know not being scared to fail and learning from that applying it because a lot of the senior managers we're with they didn't have successes from the beginning Mm. but they learned a lot to be able to leverage it so yeah, I, I was going to say, Bal, actually, on that uh, with with the um, experimentation thing. I mean, because it comes up so much. I was going to say it's almost a bit of a cliche, isn't it? Oh, uh, you know, mm. the, the companies that successful had a culture of experimentation. Uh, but I have seen it in companies where they're they're trying to develop that. They're at the early stages, and um, yeah, I I think this idea of testing, reviewing. And then acting quickly, whether that's scaling up or actually closing it down and stop doing something, that's as key as scaling something up to, to recognize when something is not working and to spot the signs mm-hmm. of when something is not working so that you shut down those projects quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, these things do work. We see, it, we see it time and again. But I think companies struggle with that stop doing, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big part of the book about somebody actually being extremely assertive but you need that because, you know, in the end, there are resources, people, resources that you waste. So sometimes you have to be pretty brutal on one side, being very open, but seeing very quickly if you have to stop or change direction. Um, so we also said, like, sometimes we talk about 
being nice at work but sometimes you have to be very assertive because there's a lot at stake and if you're managing a digital innovation change it involves a lot of people and mm. affects them too and i'm assuming that to be assertive you have to have the data in place yeah 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 you have to have the data you said yeah you need yeah. you need the data but you also need certain skills so understanding how people work together how to influence and persuade And, you know, a part of it, you know, I mentioned as well how you frame it. Mm. So if somebody comes in there very bullish, you're thinking maybe that person's aggressive. Mm. But if they tell the context that they're doing that for the common benefit mm. and that you want to work towards results, everything mm. can change. So a big part as well is giving the context at the beginning why you want to mm -hmm. do this and getting people on board with you. And that's not always done. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, I, it, it is kind of ironic in a way we've, we've we're sort of maybe ending with, with where you should start, which is you, you start with planning and uh, start with um, having the data behind your plan so that you can set out your vision and get people to mm. buy in that way. Uh, we, had, we had seen uh, examples of companies that did plan their transformation and they tended to go on and transform successfully. We also spoke to somebody who didn't plan at all and they had chaos in their, <laughs> in their department. And uh, when I said they didn't plan, they'd maybe had a little bit of a wishy-washy statement uh, of intent in terms of outset of what they were going to do. It was in a newsroom. I'll, it's not the Financial Times, so I, no. won't, I won't okay. name the other newsroom. <laughs> um, but going back to sort of these democratic uh, journalists, uh, that they, they actually missed a major... A uh, breaking news story because of the chaos around the transformation project, mm. because there wasn't any planning behind it, and it was only at that point that they then had to go back to the drawing board and actually plan mm. their transformation, and then went on to deliver it successfully. I have to say, but uh, yeah, okay. And, okay, and that's like a bit like the strategic point of building the foundation before you start, not running into it. So one aspect of that is spending time to understand who are your key champions. So if you influence them and get them on your side, they will have a viral effect with the others. Yeah, yeah, and that's the point I wanted to get to now because mm -hmm. earlier in the in this conversation you mentioned culture, mm -hmm. lobbying, and then communication, right? So I guess we're getting to lobbying now. We talk a lot about mm -hmm. culture. Uh, Lindsay, I really would like to hear some of your personal experience with this because I've heard some stories in the past which I found quite interesting. I guess for a lot of our listeners that you know who are not necessarily technical people, you know, who, but who need to bring people together with them, uh, we, I think they appreciate some some advice of people of someone like you who's been there on on on. Right. Okay. So <laughs> lobbying. Okay. I could probably go hours and hours on this, but I'll try and do it very succinct succinctly. Uh, you have to be very careful about lobbying because in uh, in transformation projects, they can go political. And um, what I mean by that is make sure you have uh, support. Um, senior support is my view. Some people will say you don't need senior support, but I'm a big believer that you do because the moment you don't have senior management support, this is for your transformation project, it's likely to go political and that means there is lobbying and it's probably lobbying behind you, behind your back. Um, 
arguing against whatever change you're having to oversee. Now, uh, I did have some of that personally, but what I'm also sort of going to uh, hopefully regale you with now, the kind of tactics that I had to uh, employ, I guess, in terms of some of the transformation projects that I oversaw, um, was that we were introducing what we call um, a broadcast schedule, which is times of when stories are going to be published around the world. Quite a simple idea, and you would think uh, quite a normal idea. The problem with that is that it involved using an old software package that nobody in editorial really wanted to use anymore and hadn't done for a long time anyway and didn't see the point of it. So then how do you get a bunch of these democratic journalists to uh, actually change their ways and use this old piece of software? Uh, it proved very, very difficult, and I had um, a couple of... Oh, a few few news editors, uh, heads of department who um, told me in no uncertain, ter no uncertain terms that uh, this was not for them and uh, they were not going to be involved. So I had to um, devise a way of how I was going to sort of persuade these people, <laughs> please, please do this. Um, and uh, I basically spotted one or two people that I knew were my allies and had worked with me. They were not people with uh, titles. They were just in the teams. And I told them that I'd really like them to work on a secret but vital project. And above all, do not tell their line manager that they are involved with this secret project. And I kept emphasising the word secret because I knew, tell a journalist to keep a secret and actually... <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this, but no, journalists are really bad at keeping <laughs> secrets. And uh, and within 24 hours, I had uh, these heads of department lining up, demanding to be involved in the secret project, which, of course, was the project that they had said they would not be involved with only a day before. Right. So and, and if I can add to that, just we gave another example where, you know, the importance of understanding the needs. And that's something that comes out of my mediation experience. So. For one project we had with drones, we had to fly a drone over a commercial airport. And then the work I did was to understand who are all the stakeholders. And even if the, the challenge was to fly the drone, you understood that each partner wanted something slightly different, whether it was influence, power, connection, or money. So you had to give them a little bit of that mm. to move them forward to the common goal. So we do talk about that, trying to understand the specific needs because you need to get inside. So if somebody says respect is important, respect means different things to each people. So even the overarching goal is the same, you have to make it a little bit personal. Then you can move people to the common goal. And that's something pretty universal. Awesome. Awesome. Very, very, very good and very practical advice, <laughs> which uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate. Um, the final point I wanted to explore is a little bit of communication as well. Um, how often, how, how should teams communicate uh, innovation? Because... You know, I've uh, I've seen experience. You know, I've I've experienced uh, situations where there was almost too much communication um, and uh, almost no work happening. You know, you just communicate, just talked about these things that's going to come, 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 and never really happened, never really materialized, or it took long, long, you know, a long time to materialize. So, 
Well, is that like a sweet spot when it comes to communication from uh, from the experience that you've had so far from the people that you spoke to? I uh, I yes. I actually yeah, think go God, oh, I'm going to go on this barrel. You can come yeah. afterwards. Yeah, uh, I think you I think you can't communicate enough. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Tiago, that you've said uh, you you saw this uh, team where there'd been too much communication. Um, we can talk more about that, uh, but. I actually think you need to communicate and keep communicating. And that will mean largely talking to people. Um, by all means, use email and Slack and so on. But be aware that if you send an email and you think you've communicated, actually all you've done is send an email. You have to make sure that people have received it, received the message as well, and reinforce reinforce that message and talk through any issues. Because I think when people talk about communication, for me what the key thing is in communicating is actually actively listening. Mm. And I know I joked earlier, I just want to tell people what to do. Uh, <laughs> but this is something I had to really learn, which is you've really got to learn to really listen to people. And it doesn't mean you have to act on what they're saying, but you've at least got to make them feel that you've considered their point of view. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that's, that's from hard bitten experience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the active listening is close to my work as a mediator, and that means different things. It, the type of questioning, the use of body language, and also summarizing conversations. So there's another aspect we talk about is you've got to make the communication, make sure people understand it, but then you make it into an action plan. So there are different acronyms that we use. So in the book, I mentioned SMART, Specific, Measurable, Assignable, Realistic, Time-Bound. And Lindsay mentioned from Adam Creek clear. So you can talk a lot, but you have to move it forward. So when you use the acronym clear, it, and we have it in the book as a guide, you talk about collaborate, talk about limit, scope, and duration, think of the emotional side, appreciate people, put it into small steps that you can, things that you can see moving forward, and be ready to refine and change because things change. So the communication has to be there. And I, I agree with Lindsay, there can never be enough. But at one point, you've got to convert that into a doable action plan with milestones and you've got to go for it. That is the moment of truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So effective communication is not just yes. communication in general. I think what no, Lindsay was saying, you yeah. need to, to address the key points, make sure that people are truly getting the, the important point of it. Uh, so it's not just fluff. It's not just the the marketing speak that sometimes you see. I guess um, I wanted just to uh, mm. approach another topic as well, which Lindsay mentioned earlier, which is diversity, right? And we all know mm. the importance of diversity for for business in general, but specifically when it comes to digital transformation, when it comes to innovation, um, how is diversity and inclusion uh, mm. important and uh, what, what difference does it make? Go ahead, Lindsay, and I'll add to that one. Go ahead. What difference does it make in terms of uh, digital transformation? I kind of, we touched on it earlier with the uh, examples where businesses have gone wrong mm. um, with the kind of things that they've designed like just for white people yeah or, or, yeah. or white or white men um so you could in, in in that example you basically just say you're saying that you could simply come out 
to market, come to market with a solution that's not fit for purpose. Yeah, and it, in, and, in and, and offends communities as well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there, there's that sort of aspect to it. Yeah. Um, the other thing is probably I'm probably diverting now in terms of uh, the other point that we haven't really made here and what we've tried to. T- target with our book Mm. is what team leaders can actually do about this, how you can affect uh, the tactics that you use to get your teams to be more diverse and make sure that you're hiring in or what are you looking for in your team uh, that's, uh, uh, if it's particularly for doing a transformation project, because often what happens is with companies that are building these diversity policies is that they, th- they think they're being very inclusive, but actually they haven't trickled it down to the people who are actually hiring in and they haven't got their tactics in place in terms of how they're going to hire mm-hmm. uh, a more diverse workforce that can deliver a transformation project. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And if you also you think about it, I mean, a classic I always talk about, diversity not well managed becomes a disaster but diversity of thought well managed creates innovation because you see things in different ways. But in the book also we talked about, you know, if you have a diverse workforce, it will increase your market share because you have a product that can work for more people. Mm. So it goes beyond just your own people. It's thinking about who you want to address regarding your market, but also it's bringing difference of thought. And, you know, there's a classic saying that bias, we touched on that a little bit, bias is the most negative thing towards innovation because, you know, never judge a book by its cover. You know, everybody can give something if you create the right atmosphere and environment for them to give their best. And the leader creates this container, depending on what you want to do with it. The context is very important. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, it's the right thing to do, right? Yes, why not? Creating a diversity, you know, giving people more opportunities as well. It's it's absolutely the right thing to do, you know. So, yeah. um, and I would say just to add that diversity is we're not just talking about oh gender or I'm from India, I'm from Australia. You know, everybody's diverse, even if you had people from the same place. And that's something that we hint on. It's understanding their working and communication mm. style. So there's many layers to diversity. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then you have to think, how does it help you in your business? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Thank you both. Mm-hmm. I have one final question to both of you, <laughs> uh, which um, is what did you actually learn writing this book? <laughs> <laughs> so much. <laughs> I learned how to collaborate with Bao. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, I mean, I'll if I'll add something, and then Lindsay can add, of course. Now, I mean, it was a question of you know working together. It was like playing tennis. It was very demanding not to see each other, and so we had to be very, very constant. You know, in our communication, we used the asynchronous tools. We cannot say it was all smooth sailing because if something's important to you, and writing a book is very important you're gonna have moments of tension, but you get through. So mm-hmm. what I learned is you have to be very open. And for me, I've written many articles. I've never written a book and I'm grateful for Lindsay to give me that opportunity is that it's a muscle. So mm-hmm. one thing I learned is, you know, not just the product that we're very proud of and it's being very well reviewed now, it's also how to do it. 
So a couple of things, you know, that I can mention. For me, it being a muscle, I would reserve three hours a day, either late at night or in the morning when I had more of my own time and didn't coincide with anything else, where I'd sit down and I'd put that time in my schedule. And sometimes I wouldn't write anything. But you need to have that muscle going to actually be able to write because doing this for a big publishing house, we had a timeline. Right. And our publisher told us if they don't like it, they won't publish it. You know, so that was tough. And another thing is getting the template right. So one thing we did very well, instead of writing the whole book and delivering it for yes or no, we quickly realized if we get one chapter right in the flow, because it's written to a certain type of audience, then we have the template on how to continue. And thanks to that, I think, you know, we drastically cut down the time of writing the book because even our publisher told us they had somebody in Switzerland who hadn't finished the book in seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and Lindsay, you're, what do you say? <laughs> you're giving all our secrets away, Bal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, not only, uh, I was kind of joking, we, we worked together very well um, on, on the book itself, but I, I think what I actually learned from, and I did genuinely learn this, was how to mitigate the risk um, during the challenges of change. Um, which I think I've touched on earlier about how to how to sat down and worked out who my allies were and and where the resistance uh, was likely to come from, particularly uh, in the early stages of a transformation project that I did about uh, it was getting on for about ten years ago now, um, so a long time ago. But that would have been really super super helpful. Um, so yeah, and in, and then writing the book itself was uh, mm. was certainly a learning curve, but uh, thoroughly in thoroughly enjoyed it sure. mm. you know and to and to see the book you know now you know available you, you have the physical copy in your hand although going digital but it's nice to have the book and <laughs> also be able to talk about it I mean it's great and and then you know it's like anything when you see people benefit from it it's fantastic and I think for me because you're so much in it and we were living the pandemic and our own daily lives you don't realize, well, I didn't realize how big a thing it is to write a book. So when it was done, you know, the people's reaction and the response, I mean, it's good to know that it also has effect on others. So I was actually speaking to Lindsay more than anybody in my life during that period. <laughs> <laughs> we actually missed that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm... Yeah, I'm sure you have a chance to catch up. Uh, you have an event coming up, right? Uh, yes. For, for... We, we have the book launch in May 17 in Madrid with our university. Okay. And we have a book launch in June, June the 8th in the UK. Okay. okay. Very, very good. Um, anything else that you would like to add? Uh, the book is available <laughs> online in all good bookshops. Okay. It's, uh, <laughs> the name of the book is Going Digital, What It Takes for His Mover Transformations. Right, and uh, it's written by Lindsay Jones and Balvinda Power, and uh, yeah, I would definitely uh, have a look at that. I haven't read the book yet, but I, I should. Uh, and um, yeah, this is the end of it, right? Um, Balvinda, Lindsay, yes, thank you so much thank for taking much. the time. No, no, thank you. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. I really, really enjoyed. And uh, for everyone listening. Um, Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. And if you want to find out more about uh, Headspring, content on uh, learning development, HR, leadership, purpose, uh, diversity as well, of course. 
So um, yeah, you know, it's all it's all there. Headspringexecutive.com. So I've been Tiago Kivi. My guests have been Lindsay Jones and Balvin the Power. I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>